Uh, as you know, uh, George Parks has been teaching this class and has been out, I think maybe this is the third week, so he had gotten a few substitutes to stand in. Uh, Hilton was going to teach this week. They had uh, uh, family travels this weekend and were able to get back early. So I offered to give him my notes and let him take over, but he said he declined. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to try to stick to uh, the outline that George developed as much as possible. Uh, I have not been in this class every week. I've tried to be here as much as I can, but I go to several classes. Um, and so what I have gleaned is we like to cover a lot of scripture uh, each class period. And so we're going to do that again today. We're going to look at about five different uh, sections of story from 1 Kings through 2 Chronicles. And, and so we'll be in a lot of scripture. So if you have a Bible, that's great. I would encourage you to uh, be prepared to flip through as we read these texts. A lot of them will be on the screen, and I tried to marry up. Uh, texts to verses so you can kind of follow along as we're jumping around. But if you get lost, just say, where, where are you? And then we'll, we'll figure out where we are. Uh, so, I want to hand out uh, a diagram that could be helpful. It's been on the screen a couple of times and I've got it here, but I imagine that's tough to read on the screen. But I really do think this is a helpful resource, so I'm going to hand a couple of these out so that you can refer to them. Brett, would you like a copy? Mm -hmm. I'll let y'all just distribute those back. I know there's a ton of information here um, and you're not expected to memorize it, but it's a helpful resource. A few years ago, this is a picture, uh, going the wrong way. A few years ago, this is a picture of me uh, and another lady at another church that were teaching fifth graders. This is my son here in the middle Isaac our oldest so he's now a junior in high school so this was quite a few years ago um, but you can see in the background here that we made a big huge bulletin board called the kingdom of Israel and it's a timeline kind of similar to what you have in your hands here and we had the kids you know cut out different shapes sizes for the different reigns of the kings and the presence of the prophets and that was really helpful so I thought we might do that again today and build our own bulletin board but then I thought uh, it might be easier if I just give us a handout so so you have a handout with a lot of that information um, but you know even for I, I've studied the Old Testament quite a bit and I sometimes get confused on where I am on in the timeline and order of kings and how the kings relate to a particular prophet so I go back to a graphic like this uh, often and use it as a as a helpful resource so today we plan to cover these five uh, stories a widow trusts Elijah however I think we've covered that story already. Does anybody recall if we've gone through the uh, Elijah and the widow story? I thought we had. Okay. So we'll probably focus on these next four. A peaceful succession from Elijah to Elisha. Uh, the violent succession of Yehu, King Yehu. Uh, we'll go back and look at Jehoshaphat once more, who's a good king. And then um, how Jehoshaphat manages to defend his, or actually God manages to defend, to defend the kingdom for Jehoshaphat. So those are the stories that we will Fine today. So we're going to start in uh, 1 Kings 17. And uh, I'll start reading here. This is, again, this is the story of Elijah and the, and the widow. So we'll just go through this quickly and see if there's any comments. Uh, this is just a lot of reading text. So feel free to interject when something is interesting to you of, of, or of note. Uh, but this is the story of Elijah and the widow. Uh, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. So he forecasts this drought. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the Wadi Herit, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the Wadi, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the Wadi Herit, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the Wadi. But after a while, the Wadi dried up due to the flood he had forecasted. Uh, because there was no rain in the land. So I remember hearing this story as a young person and thinking, oh, that's so neat that the birds fed him. And I'm sure in my mind I was thinking the birds were delivering McDonald's Happy Meals or some sort of nice steak on a, on a plate. But if you think about the meat that a bird might bring, that might not be the most pleasant experience. Uh, but it was enough to, to sustain uh, Elijah. Um, so this is how God chooses to provide for Elijah. And then God directs Elijah, Go now to Zarephath, which uh, belongs to Sidon. Live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. It's interesting that he has said he has already commanded the widow to feed him. I, I don't know if the widow got that message because she's a little bit surprised later. Uh, he says, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son. That way may I eat it and die. It's a pretty dismal picture here. Elijah says, Do not be afraid and go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. And then George has this question, what would you have done? Um, obviously, this is a tremendous act of faith uh, for the widow, who is down to her last meal and um, is expecting to uh, pass away for her, her and her son. This is the end. And of course, as a parent, <clears throat> you always have a sense of needing to provide for your, for your children. And so I imagine if it was just her, she probably would have been okay with the situation. Not, not a great situation, but she probably could have managed saying, this is the end for me, and, and that's just how it is. But given that her son is in the equation too, that would have been especially upsetting. So what would you have done? You know, it, it, perhaps that rests on the fact that God told Elijah that he had told the widow that she needed to provide for him. So if she had gotten this message from God, you know, I, I could see how perhaps she would have enough faith in that message that she would have acted um, appropriately. I, if she didn't get that message, which it sounds like maybe she didn't, she's just going on Elijah's word, which would take even more faith, I think. But um, the rest of the story, she went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her, and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Uh, so the, the food doesn't run out. The second half of this story is that uh, after the miraculous feeding, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. 
And Elijah says, what have you against me, O man of... Or, sorry, the, the widow says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to, to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She's associating fault here. But he says to her, give me your son. Uh, he took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. And so the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Anything interesting comments there? The food didn't do it. It was the resurrection. That's right. That's right. The fact that her... Her jars never ran out of meal or oil. That didn't convince her. But the resurrection of her son did. So, which is fair. I, you know, I, I don't know how I would react. It, it might take more than miraculous appearance of meal and oil to convince me there too. Okay, so that's, that's the first of the five stories, and I think we've covered that one already. Uh, we'll move on to uh, Yehu and Elisha being appointed. So this is 1 Kings 19. So after the encounter with the widow, uh, Elijah moves on and if you remember he goes to uh, Mount Horeb uh, to, to look for God, to be in God's presence and eventually finds God in the uh, gentle still voice and uh, hears from God <clears throat> where to go next. Uh, says, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Yehu shall kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave uh, 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not, not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And we've talked a little bit about uh, Baal uh, in, in a previous class. I'll say a word about Baal here in just a second. Just before we get there, uh, note who, he's note who um, Elijah is supposed to anoint. First he has... Haziel, king over Aram, which is interesting because you think of these prophets as speaking a word to Israel and Judah. But apparently, Elijah has some sort of authority or recognition in surrounding kingdoms as well. So if you think of, uh, if you look at Aram, which is up here, Damascus, into the Syrian Empire, which of course where we're having conflict today in the Syrian region, um, that's where Haziel is going to reign. And so Elijah is, is even, you know, has some influence all the way into the north up there. Um, okay, I'm getting ahead here. Um, so Haziel, uh, of course, also uh, Yehu, who will just be the king over Israel. So that kind of makes more sense to us. Uh, and then he's going to anoint Elisha to be the next prophet as well. 
And then there's these 7,000, this kind of this remnant uh, who has been faithful to God, who has, who has not bowed to Baal. And we've talked a little bit about Baal. Of course, Baal was a, a, a foreign god. Um, I, I did a little bit of, of looking, and scholars have some mixed uh, views on exactly which deity Baal represented. Uh, and I, uh, this is just my opinion. I, I think that there were multiple uh, gods, all represented by um, Baal. So Baal in the ancient language is just a word for Lord, the way um, British people might use the word Lord to address someone of significance or authority. And so it's, it's possible that they just referred, used Baal as a reference to uh, multiple gods. Uh, but, and there were, there were clearly a, a couple of different Baals that were fairly prominent. Uh, Baal of Shemaim, which is uh, Baal of the heavens, kind of the weather god, god of creation is how they would have viewed that. But I think it's interesting to note um, the word Baal. Uh, you know, in, in Hebrew, um, well, I'll just write this here. Um, you know, in, of course, Hebrew goes right to left. So... The word uh, Baal in Hebrew, Bet Ein Lamed, is just a word for master. Uh, the other cultures used it as Lord. Uh, and then the word for flies uh, is Zvuv. Uh, so you have Lord of the Flies, like the, the narrative we all read in middle school, um, is, is, um, is where we get the word Beelzebub. So if I know these are hard to read here, but if you kind of look at um, B A L, I guess I, I need to be able to write English better. B A L and then Z B and then a U and then a B sound. So as you read from right to left, B L Zabub, you can see that here. So essentially, when we talk about B L Zabub, uh, we're we're saying this is the Lord of the Flies, the Master of Death, the God of all brokenness and death, uh, and so that's kind of where, at least the etymology of, of where where that language comes from. Okay, uh, that's a little bit of a sidebar. Okay, so uh, Elijah is tasked with these three uh, anoint anointments that he's uh, going to to undertake. So he sets out from there and he first finds Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him, which is just an expression to kind of drape his cloak over him. I'm not sure if that's uh, physically or just uh, metaphorically that he's kind of taking him under his wing. He's designating him as his apprentice. Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? <clears throat> he returned from following him, took the yoke of the oxen, and slaughtered them using the equipment from the oxen. He boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. Kind of a shaking of the dust of the feet or cleaning your hands and saying, this is a new, new course for me. I'm no longer going to farm with these oxen. I'm going to follow Elijah. Uh, he's very much willing to serve. You know, he says goodbye to his family, he shares a meal with them, and then he, and he sets out. And that's interesting. Um, you can kind of compare that to a few other people who are called in Scripture. 
George has, has this reference here from Luke 9, where Jesus is call, calling his, his followers. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and, and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it's possible that Jesus has this calling of Elisha's story in his mind and is trying to convince these people to essentially drop what they have and follow him. Of course, the calling of the disciples is a little bit different where he calls uh, men from the boats and they essentially drop their nets and, and go. Um, if you look back in the Old Testament, George doesn't have this here, but if you think about the, the calling of Moses and Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jonah, these are all reluctant prophets where when they receive the call of God, they immediately come up with a list of why they can't or why they're unable or why they're not qualified. Uh, but that's a, a common reaction throughout Scripture is for people to kind of drag their feet or to be reluctant. Uh, and so it's... Um, and Elisha doesn't immediately go. He, he does you know, have, have a banquet with his people in the town and say goodbye to his family. But, but fairly quickly, Elisha is willing to go. Um, so a couple of questions here. I, I especially like um, the second one. If you were told that you were being laid off, but you needed to stay on and, and train your uh, replacement, how would you feel about that? Has anybody ever had an actual experience like that? Well, usually when you tell people that you're letting them go, you've got to pay them bonuses to stay around. And even then, right. they're not very enthusiastic. Right, right. It's very tough. Yeah. It seems like Elijah is mature enough to say, yeah, I can, I can help God bring on this young, this young buck as the next uh, prophet. Uh, so it doesn't seem like Elijah necessarily has that, that feeling, but that's, that's very common for sure. But to David's uh, sermon this morning, about it's not about you, it's about the, the, it's the job, mm -hmm. it's not the person. Right. So often, even people who are president or whatever have a hard time coming off that mm -hmm. that pinnacle because it's not about them; mm -hmm. it's the office. Right, they, right. It's hard to remember. Right, and that's a good example. The the passing of the of the presidential torch. Usually, at least the things we hear, usually that goes fairly smoothly. I know that there, you know, sometimes I think the staff does things and you know they steal the W's off the keyboards when George W. Bush is coming into office and things like that. So I, I think there are some things like that. But generally, I think that the presidents do a pretty good job of, of handing power over to the next person. Uh, I, you know, I'm not in those meetings, but it seems like just from a, the distance I have that that, that happens fairly smoothly. And even when um, you know, the, the subsequent president has a very different paradigm view and different uh, worldview, political views. It seems like they're fairly respectable. I think um, after four or eight years, they, they slowly start to realize this office is bigger than me, bigger than my own political views, bigger than my period of eight years. There's something, there's a larger story that rests here.
Jack Nicholson was in a movie a few years ago. I think it was called About Schmidt. This guy's getting ready to retire. Mm -hmm. And he packs up all of his files and takes them home, knowing that they're just going to have to be calling him with questions. And they never call. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you yeah. have to figure what your worth is right. after you retire and something else because they've gone on. Yeah. The job has continued on without right. it. They're, they're figuring out how to make it work. Yeah, and that's, you know, when you look at the front end, unless it's a startup thing or something that you have started yourself, generally that job was there before you were there. So like I came into a role at Otter Creek. Otter Creek survived without me fine. Now I think I have a contribution to make and I plan to do the, the best I can for the time I'm here. But eventually, I won't work at Otter Creek, and Otter Creek will be fine without me. So, you know, we all are focused on our own work, and Elijah, I'm sure, thinks he's doing great work for, for God, and I think he is, but I think he manages to have that perspective of, this is, this is bigger than me, and I can take on Elisha and uh, train him and, and pass, pass along. Okay, so another appointment uh, is King Yehu. Uh, and... Here we get into a lot of blood and gore, and this is just some of these Old Testament stories that middle school boys love because it's got a lot of entertainment value. Okay. So, uh, also you shall anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, uh, Yehu shall kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall kill. And of course, we don't typically think of prophets as killers. Uh, we did have the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, who um, seems to have ordered the death of about 400 uh, prophets of, of Baal. Uh, but I, I think that that was just a role of being in a position of authority. Uh, and given their, their cultural context, there were times where uh, people were put to death. And of course there was a lot of war and conflict and, and the prophets were, were involved in that to some extent. Okay, so just to set context, Ahab, uh, Jezebel's former husband, has been dead for 14 years. And Jezebel is in the Jezreel Valley along with her son, King Yoram, or Yehoram. Uh, Ahaziah of Judah is visiting. So you have the two kings in one place. And Ahaziah is actually recovering from wounds. So he's not in the best of shape. But... Um, there's a show on right now, I haven't seen it, but it's called The Lone Survivor or something like that, where all the government has gathered and a bomb went off and the entire government was wiped out except for the one, the designated survivor, that's what it's called, yeah. Uh, and so, I don't know, that's all I know about the show, but apparently this guy is the, the, le the last person out of the government, and so, and that's intentional, right? So when we have a State of the Union address or all of Congress is gathered, uh, we always have a few people somewhere else in case calamity strikes. We have some designated survivors. So it's interesting here that uh, the king of Judah and Israel don't, don't practice that. They're gathered in the same place, um, which could be precarious, as we will find out. So Yehu conspires against Yoram. And... Uh, this is a little bit out of context. 9, 14, 16. Uh, previously, um, we have, uh, we have uh, um, Yehu uh, is surrounded by his officers and his officers. Uh, Yehu gets word from Elisha indirectly. Elisha appoints another 
prophet to go and tell Yehu that he will be king. So, so Yehu is now informed that he is the, the next anointed king by God through a few, <laughs> uh, through a few levels. And Yehu mentions that to his officers, and his officers uh, are excited about that and say, yeah, we want you to be king. And so Yehu says, if this is your wish, then let no one slip out of the city and go and tell the news in Jezreel. And then Yehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, where Joram was, was uh, laying, lying ill. King Ahaziah of Judah had come down to visit Joram as well. Uh, in Jezreel, the sentinel standing on the tower spied the company of Yehu arriving and said, I see a company. And Yoram says, take a horseman, send him to meet them, and let him say, is it peace? In other words, do you, do you come in peace? So the horseman went to meet him. He said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Yehu responded, what have you to do with peace? Fall in behind me. So he appears to not kill him, but he's basically takes him hostage or incorporates him into his crew in any case. So the sentinel reports saying the messenger reached him but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? Yehu answered, what have you to do with peace? Fall in behind me. And again the sentinel reports back to Yoram. Uh, he reached them, but he's not coming back. It looks like the driving of Yehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives like a maniac. <laughs> Which is interesting. So, so he's far enough away, he can't quite identify, but apparently just by his poor driving skill, he can identify that this is Yehu. <clears throat> that's, that's interesting. Interesting detail there. Okay, so when Yoram saw Yehu, he said, Is it peace, Yehu? In fact, uh, we, I guess we skipped this, but there's a verse there that says, uh, Yoram actually rides out. So he's the third messenger, essentially. He says, Is it peace, Yehu? <clears throat> and uh, Yehu says, What peace can there be so long as the many whoredoms and sorceries of your mother Jezebel continue? So pretty strong word to indicate that, no, he is not coming in peace. Uh, I think in some of your translations it may say the many um, sorceries and witchcraft. Yeah, uh, some language like that. So, uh, or idolatries maybe in there, idolatries and, and sorceries. So in any case, he's saying your mother is, is ruling. She's not a, not a good person and uh, I'm here to, to take you guys out. So Joram uh, reigned about and fled saying to Ahaziah, Treason Ahaziah. In other words, he's not here in peace. Run for cover. And uh, Yehu draws his bow and with all his strength shoots Yoram between the shoulders, uh, apparently in the back, so that the arrow pierced, pierced his heart and he sinks uh, into his chariot. Yehu says to his aide, Bidkar, lift him out and throw him onto the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, and you'll remember this story, we covered this story in here a week or two ago. Uh, for remember, when you and I rode side by side behind his father Ahab, how the Lord uttered this oracle against him, for the blood of Naboth and uh, for the blood of his children that I saw yesterday, says the Lord, I swear I will repay you on this very plot of ground. Now therefore lift him out and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So if you remember, uh, it was uh, Ahab uh, who wanted that plot, Naboth's vineyard, and tried to make a strike a deal, couldn't get the deal done, 
And Jezebel said, uh, you're the king, you don't need to negotiate, we'll just take the land, and they killed, uh, they killed Naboth. Uh, so now, uh, it's all been uh, redeemed, I suppose. <clears throat> okay, uh, King Ahaziah of Judah saw this. He fled in the direction of Beit Hagan. Yehu pursued him, saying, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent to Gur, which is by Iblium. And then he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. His, office, his officers carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his ancestors in the city of David. So he gets a little bit uh, better treatment post-mortem. He's at least buried with his ancestors, not cast out onto a field. Nonetheless, he is dead as well. Now, uh, I think this is a really interesting point in the, in the storyline, and I don't have a good answer to my question. Uh, maybe you'll have some insight. I'm wondering why Yehu doesn't take the opportunity, now that both kings are dead, to think about reuniting the two kingdoms. Seems like if I had been Yehu and managed to kill both kings in one strike, I would have said, well, now I'm king of, of Israel and Judah. Let's reunite the kingdom. Uh, but he doesn't do that. Does anybody have any insight as to why he doesn't take advantage of that? There may not be reason, but it seems like that's a prime opportunity. All right, well, uh, Yehu is not done. There's still Jezebel to deal with. And so when Yehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. As Yehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? He looked up to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So there's a little bit of... Um, uh, could be some confusion here. I think essentially what Jezebel is doing is talking some trash. She's referring to, to Zimri, who uh, only managed to reign for seven days and then was killed by his own kinfolk. And I think she's essentially trying to curse Yehu to say, it'll be the same for you. You'll become king and somebody's going to come right behind you and take you out and your kingdom will not last. Um, so I think she's just calling to mind the, the story of, of Zimri. Uh, and of course, uh, Yehu is saying, <clears throat> look, no, nobody's on my side. I don't have anybody th that's, that's helping me here, uh, but, but I'm for sure going to take you out. And so uh, he, uh, there are two or three eunuchs that looked out at, down at Yehu as well, and he says to the eunuchs, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, which trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. He said, See to that cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. So, fairly brutal. Um, but uh, this, of course, fulfills the prophecy. So when they came back and told Yehu, uh, this is the word of the Lord, uh, which he spoke by his servant, uh, okay, well, okay. When they, came, when they came back and told him, he said, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel. The dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. The corpse of Jezebel shall be like the dung on the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. 
So eventually, essentially, she is gone. There is no remnant, uh, nothing to even bury or recognize or remember her by. Um, so pr pretty, pretty brutal ending uh, for a lady who uh, obviously brought about a lot of brutality her herself. Uh, here, I, I kind of spoiled this a little bit, I guess. Um, why does Jezebel address Yehu as Zimri? Uh, Zimri overthrew Basha's son, Elah, uh, who was killed, uh, killed a drunken Elah in a friend's house and killed all of Basha's male descendants. And Zimri only reigned for seven days before Omri burned his house down with Zimri in it. So, again, I think she was just trying to say, uh, you're, you're, you're not going to be any better than, than Zimri was. Okay, so that's how Yehu gets to the throne. So if you look at your chart here, uh, of course this is in Israel, so he's about uh, midway of the top line in, in Israel. By the way, I should have said, just in case you're having trouble reading this, this is a timeline that starts up in the upper left corner at 940 BC, moves to the right. When you get to the end of the first line, uh, the yellow kings are uh, Israel, green is Judah. You can see at the end of the top line of the yellow, that's um, <clears throat> when Israel is sent off into captivity. Judah uh, keeps going, and so Judah wraps around down to the second line and progresses all the way into the uh, late 500s there before, they're, uh, before they enter into captivity. So that's kind of how you read it. It takes a minute to figure that out. And then the other things... The, the other names are prophets in between here. In red are kings of surrounding kingdoms. So it's a lot of good, in, uh, good information all in one <clears throat> picture. But you can see Yehu's reign here uh, starts right at that transition between Elijah and Elisha. Uh, he's the successor of Yoram. We just read that story. Uh, and then um, if you look down below that at the green line, Judah's line, just to the left, so just a little bit before Yehu is Jehoshaphat. So we're going to back up just a little bit and pick up uh, with Judah again to get the story uh, of Jehoshaphat. Okay. You know, your question was interesting on why he didn't kind mm -hmm. combine. Do mm -hmm. you think it's because, um, which one, Elijah anointed him to be king of Israel could, could be both. could be that that would make sense Elijah uh, well and actually you know Elijah got word to to anoint Yehu king of Israel he passed that to Elisha but Elisha didn't anoint him either Elisha uh, handed that down to just one of the prophets in the in the clergy, apparently, and that's the person that went to Yehu and said, you were going to be the king of Israel. But because that word came from Elisha and Elijah and from God, ultimately, perhaps Yehu had it in his head that his role was to be king of Israel and, and not more than that. But So that's a possibility. Um, and it's possible that he just thought he needed to be faithful to that. It's just surprising, given the reign of so many greedy kings, yes. that he didn't take the opportunity to claim both kingdoms. but And there may be some history there that I'm not aware of that would explain it, but I just I don't know that answer. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll back up a little bit and pick back up with Judah. So this is before uh, Yehu. This is back to Jehoshaphat. 
And I've just got a couple of minutes, so we'll go quickly here. Uh, Je Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. He walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from, from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. That's the places where people worshipped foreign gods. And the people still sacrificed and offered incense on the high places. Uh, and so and there's a place in Chronicles that's a little bit of a conflict with this that says that uh, the high places were destroyed under Jehoshaphat. So <clears throat> not sure if there's an interpretation uh, discrepancy there or what. But essentially... Uh, Jehoshaphat is named as a good king who walks in, in the Lord's ways, which is refreshing. Uh, okay, here's a note about high places. Yeah, First Kings, it says, yet the high places were not destroyed. Second Chronicles, it says he removed the high places in the sacred poles from Judah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's possible that First Kings is talking uh, about Israel and Judah, and, and uh, Second Chronicles may just be talking uh, about uh, Judah. Um, so there, that may explain that discrepancy a little bit. There's a long list of successes uh, by Jehoshaphat. He fortresses uh, cities. He carries out great works. Uh, he's just a good king, well-loved. Uh, he also appoints judges and, and uh, helps instill that system throughout the land to ensure that there is uh, no partiality or taking of bribes, that justice is true. Uh, and then the last little bit here, we may not be able to get through all of that. We've just got a minute. Uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites attack Jehoshaphat prays. So your charge will be to read 2 Chronicles 20 this week. Uh, but I'll just skim through. Um, there, you know, the, the people are, these armies are attacking from, uh, from Ammon and from Moab. Some of your Bibles may say uh, from Edom. Which, if you remember, if you trace Edom back, that goes all the way back to Esau. Uh, so it's people from the, from the east and south that are all attacking at once, which is overwhelming uh, for sure. Uh, God, ensure, God uh, promises Jehoshaphat that this battle is not for, for them to fight, that, that God will manage. Uh, so Jehoshaphat puts his, his choir in front of the army and, and they lead out for battle. Um, praising God as they go. Uh, as they begin to sing and praise, the Lord sets an ambush. And essentially what happens is the, the different groups, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the people from Mount Seir, all wake up in the morning and somehow they're confused and attack each other. Well, I say they're somehow confused. It could be that they had some sort of uh, fight amongst themselves, some sort of conflict. We're not sure what the motive is, essentially. four-part <laughs> Could have been. Could have been. Maybe they were talking about acapella and instrumental, and they, uh, they had some conflict. In any case, uh, whether they were just confused, maybe there was a fog, we don't know. Somehow God worked miraculously so that those armies attacked each other and wiped each other out to the man, so that there, was no, there, were, no, there were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Uh, and so, of course, the result is a, a victory for Jehoshaphat. And, uh, and the significant part of this story, and we'll close here, is not just that the battle was won, but that word spread throughout the land that the God of Israel and Judah uh, protected them and caused this battle to take place between the opposing armies. And so the word spread that... God, Jehovah God is the one true God and he protects and loves his people and you should fear him. 
And so that, that's the lesson that comes out of that. So we went through that last bit quickly. You might read First Chronicles 20 this week. And I think George will be back next Sunday. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Gary. Sure.